Bruce Hoffman and Jacob Ware are the authors of God's Guns and Sedition, Far-Right Terrorism in America. Bruce Hoffman is a senior fellow for counterterrorism and homeland security at the Council on Foreign Relations and has been studying terrorism and insurgency for almost half a century. He is a professor at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service, where he directed the Center for Jewish Civilization from 2020 to 2023, as well as the Center for Security Studies and the Security Studies Program from 2010 to 2017. He is a professor emeritus of terrorism at the University of St. Andrews and the former corporate chair in counterterrorism at Rand Corporation and director of its D.C. office. Jacob Ware is a research fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he studies domestic and international terrorism and counterterrorism. He is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service and serves on the editorial boards for the academic journal Studies in Conflict and Terrorism and the Irregular Warfare Initiative at the Modern War Institute at West Point. It was a pleasure to be able to speak with both these men, and we discussed things far-ranging, including the vast history of far-right terrorism in America, the situation today, and policy solutions. I hope you will enjoy. Well, to begin, uh, perhaps one of you could describe the scale of the problem that you outlined in the book, which is uh, far-right extremism. Uh, for instance, how many cases does the FBI handle annually, and is this a problem that you think is trending upward uh, decade by decade, or is it something that is uh, plateauing? And what percentage of the problem of, of extremism writ large, what percentage of that roughly would you say is far right versus far left? Well, those are all great questions, actually, um, to start with. Really, though, the crux of the book is to trace an historical trajectory that we argue, of course, has antecedents in the post-Civil War Reconstruction period and the revival of the Ku Klux Klan in the 19-teens and 1920s, its reappearance again in the 1950s and 60s. But we're really tracing an historical trajectory from the 1980s uh, where um, racism, anti-Semitism, xenophobia, militant resistance to taxes, strident assertions of Second Amendment rights, militant abortion, uh, militant opposition to legalized uh, abortion, all get combined with sedition and anti-government extremism. And that really began in the 1980s, but it was an era without social media. So although it had some purchase um, and got some traction, it was very much isolated pockets. And it's really in the 20 teens, um, and we could unpack this more, but it's really in the past decade where because of social media, it's empowered and, and spreads much more. I think in terms of raw numbers, um, FBI, for instance, in 2019 had 850 domestic terrorism cases open that it was investigating. That number doubled um, in uh, 2020 and it tripled in 2022. This is a huge bucket. It includes not just violent far-right uh, extremists, but also violent far-left extremists, um, homegrown violent extremists that could be Salafi jihadis, animal rights activists, for example, that cross the line into violence and so on. That's part of the problem we also illuminate in the book. Since there's no domestic terrorism legislation, the FBI actually doesn't further divide or at least publish their statistics. So therefore, you have to turn to, for instance, the Anti-Defamation League um, for greater granularity. And there one finds that between 2012 and 2022, the last year that data has been published since we're still so, you know, just just into the, the new year of 2024. So from 2012 to 2022, According to the Anti-Defamation League, which I think maps with the FBI figures, a 75 percent of the homicides in the United States that were politically motivated, which is to say that's what terrorism is, were committed by white supremacists. In fact, it was something like 95% in recent years. So clearly the threat is coming much more from the violent far right than the far left. And I'll add one other thing. We're not ignoring at all that there hasn't been violence committed by far left extremists. In fact, with the exception, perhaps, of the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the United States Capitol, the most serious domestic terrorist incident in recent years was a shooting uh, in June 2017 of a congressional baseball practice in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., where the, Republic, the members of the Republican team, including Republican congressmen, were training for the annual congressional baseball team. And five persons were very seriously wounded, including the then minority leader, uh, Steve Sc Scalise, Republican from Louisiana. It was only 
the fact that he had a personal security detail there of U.S. Capitol Police that prevented a greater tragedy. Uh, there was also a car bombing at an Immigration Customs Enforcement facility in Tacoma, Washington, a few years ago. But that's the thing. I mean, coming from the far left, there's, of course, the violence that we saw um, following the, the killing of George Floyd, the torching of a police station in, 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 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for example, and other acts of vandalism um, and arson and so on. But just the, the severity is very different and the numbers, um, according to one scholar who Jacob and I uh, know very well, who's at American University, Cynthia Miller Idris, and her book, Hate in the Homeland, she estimates that there's 75,000 violently uh, inclined armed far-right extremists in the United States. A few years ago, the New York Times said there were 15 to 20,000 well-armed members of anti-government militias. I mean, these are enormous uh, numbers that completely eclipse whatever might exist on on the far left. Hmm. Um, and just to get a, a a better sense of the historical background here, this is trending up from historical records uh but what what could you detail the the level to which american political life was suffused with a far-right extremist activity specifically uh you give some examples in the book of politicians being involved with the clan well interestingly you know jacob and i are co-authors are 40 41 years apart so not surprisingly i took the more historical chapters in jacob especially because so much revolved around contemporary social media and gaming platforms and so on. He did the modern. So I don't want to monopolize this, but since you're talking about the historical part, I'll, I'll go first. Um, that was actually one of the surprising things uh, we found in researching the book is that um, the Ku Klux Klan, as we all know, was founded after the Civil War basically to re-oppress uh, the freed slaves and then had a very specific and a very racist orientation. Uh, like all terrorist groups everywhere throughout history, um, they have to move forward to survive. They have to appeal to an increasingly diverse constituency. And that's precisely what abetted and facilitated the revival of the Ku Klux Klan in the 19-teens. They widened their aperture, as it were, from just racism to anti-Semitism, um, hatred of, of, of Jews. They became anti uh, Catholicism. They were anti-Catholic, so they were very much against Jews immigrating from Eastern Europe and Catholics, particularly Italians, emigrating uh, from uh, Sicily, Italy, some of the Balkan countries. They were also very anti-Asian. Um, and all these things came together in 1924 in the Immigration Act that was passed that year and that the Klan had lobbied for. And this prevented the immigration of people from Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, and Asia, and remained in force until 1965, until Lyndon Baines Johnson, as part of the civil rights legislation, had it, had it uh, repealed. The reason the Klan could lobby for this in the 1920s is that they were so powerful. They had at least four to five million dues-paying members. There were more members north of the Mason-Dixon line than in the Old South. Um, Ohio, Indiana, and Pennsylvania had the largest Klan memberships. And in fact, there were more Klan members in urban areas of the North than in the rural areas of the South. So, so much for a lot of our stereotypes. Um, they had a presence at the 1924 presidential um, uh, conventions, both for the Republican and Democratic candidates. They routinely elected uh, senators, congressmen, governors, mayors, aldermen, and so on. In fact, a future president of the United States, Harry S. Truman, was a member of the Ku Klux Klan in Missouri. I mean, it became very much of a, of a popular, commercially oriented, you know, that we help one another. There was a female Klan that shared recipes and kept white wo womanhood pure and Christian. So it was a very popular and influential movement. Um, it was riven by corruption, and that's what basically brought its downfall. But that is something that we found so interesting in the book, is that our images of the Klan parading around in uh, white sheets and face coverings, and in fact, uh, at least 10,000 Klansmen paraded down Pennsylvania Avenue in the 1920s. They couldn't have their face obscured. That was illegal, but they paraded in full Klan regalia. That's how powerful they were. But by the 1980s, when 
the focus of our book really begins. The Klan had issued the, the, the sheets and the, the, the American Nazis had stopped wearing jodfers and boots and brown shirts and Sam Brown belts. And it's almost like the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. But 30 years before, the white supremacists and the far right extremists began wearing respectable suits, wearing uh, khakis and polo shirts and so on. So they didn't have the demonstrable images of a previous era. They were trying to go much more mainstream. And indeed, by the 21st century, unfortunately, they succeeded because much like the 1920s, as we know today, they received top cover and endorsement. And sometimes their extreme views are channeled by mainstream political figures. Mm. And where the book does uh, begin, in a sense, uh, or at least begin the, the primary focus is in the late 1970s, and particularly with uh, two, two things that I noticed was the, the concept of the leaderless resistance by William, Pe- uh, sorry, uh, Lewis Beam, mm-hmm. and then also this 1978 publication of William Pierce's The Turner Diaries, which is maybe it's up there with maybe like the Camp of Saints in Mein Kampf is like the the neo-Nazi Bibles, I suppose. Uh, Could you very briefly just discuss the importance of the Turner Diaries as it relates to the contemporary neo-Nazi far-right extremist movement? Turner Diaries, as as you know, David, was written by William uh, Luther Pierce, who was the head of the National Alliance, which was a Nazi party active in the United States in Arlington, Virginia, a suburb of Washington, D.C., um, he wrote it under a pseudonym, Andrew McDonald, but Pierce himself was no dummy. Uh, he actually had a PhD in physics for a time. He had studied at Caltech, probably one of the best scientific and engineering universities in the U.S., although he subsequently obtained his degrees from University of Oregon. Um, no bad university either. But he understood that his turgid, didactic Nazi rechanneling and repackaging of Hitler and Mein Kampf only would have a, a limited resonance. And that's where he hit upon the idea of writing a fictional treatment, the Turner Diaries, this dystopian novel that basically lays out a story of how anti-government extremists and white supremacists stage a race revolution and take over the United States. They overthrow the government. And as sometimes life follows art or fact follows fiction, the Turner Diaries has been used as a blueprint by actual terrorist groups, a group calling itself The Order, which is the fictional terrorist group depicted in the Turner Diaries, was active in the northwest of the United States uh, in the mid-1980s. Timothy McVeigh, for instance, um, not only was so enamored of the Turner Diaries, I mean, he read it countless times. In fact, when he was arrested just hours after he blew up the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Office building in Oklahoma City in April 1995 that killed 168 persons when the um, Oklahoma State Trooper stopped him on the car seat next to him was a folder with cutout pages that had been underlined and highlighted from the Turner Diaries. Um, In fact, in the Turner Diaries, one of the climactic scenes is a truck bomb detonated in the basement of the FBI headquarters in Washington. McVeigh just adopted that. There was no underground basement in the Murrah building, but he detonated a truck bomb right outside. So he copied it as well. Uh, Turner Diaries is estimated to have sold between 200,000 and half a million copies. And in fact, up until a week after January 6th, 2021, you could buy it off Amazon. Hmm. One of the one of the themes that uh, you bring out in the book is the idea that we are uh, we are essentially feeding from a fire hose of information now in the current media environment with uh, the internet and just you know, people are not trained in how to navigate even something as simple as a news article, how to fact check, how you know. For many people, fact checking consists primarily of googling uh, information, and and this is this is it really. This it's. Uh, for those who are not analysts or lawyers or journalists, it's a very, it's a very messy, brave new world. And one of the things that you describe in the book is how people who are in this place of confusion become fearful and distrustful of authority and will then look for sources of guidance or claim that some powerful elites are running things as a form of, as a simplistic analysis to give them some comfort, right? To what degree do we see 
to this day, the Turner Diaries playing a role, giving guidance, giving people some kind of comfort or, or that it is still being brought up uh, amongst contemporary neo-Nazi groups on social media. Is this still, does it still have a place in the various movements today? Or is this really just an artifact of the past that propelled things? But, you know, if I were to talk to some neo-Nazis today, would they even, would they even know about this text? I yeah, I'll jump in on that one, David, and say, yes, I think, first of all, um, you actually just see that in the imagery. So the front cover of our book um, depicts the gallows and noose erected outside the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, which we see as a direct link to um, the Turner Diaries and the Day of the Rope. That, I think uh, you froze, Jacob. That they did I? Yeah. And your image is kind of blurred too. I don't know if it's the you don't have the bandwidth in the in the conference room. That's okay. The um, uh, Riverside will record locally on his laptop. So. Oh, okay. Oh, great. All right. Yeah. Oh, this is much better. Is it better? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. See, David, when it, when I. When you pressed record, a, a, a thing came up that said refresh, and I didn't know. I got so scared, but <laughs> okay. that is better now. <laughs> Hang on. Maybe you ought to come and use your laptop in, in the office. Yeah, I wonder why this is happening. Hang on. Go, uh, give me one second. No worries. Riverside uh, allows me uh, quite powerful editing capabilities that are beyond my... Oh, interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't even be able to realize that. Oh, in fact, um, for those for people who aren't really editing savvy like myself, I can it'll produce an AI generated transcript. Right. And then I can just go in and edit the transcript. Holy cow. Yeah. So so all this conversation, I can just highlight that hit delete and it will also edit the video. (laughs) It's wow. And I'm not you know, I would never be able to do something like that without without the aid of the the site i don't have that those skill sets so it's pretty great yeah yeah any better yeah you're clear the vision part i'm on my uh my hotspot now my phone for some reason cfr wi-fi doesn't seem to be wanting to cooperate today bruce i don't know why um no worries but if if this works we can try this again and if not bruce you're flying solo on this one okay (laughs) <laughs> well, you can come in the office. <laughs> oh, but if, if well, your Wi-Fi is not working. Yeah. We can try my laptop, too, because my laptop seems to have been working fine. We can try that uh, if you want, yeah. Um, but is it, does it feel better now? It's been, it's been running smoothly so far. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm, ha- I'm happy to try that question again, and we'll see if we can get through it. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, so it was about uh, whether, whether the Turner Diary still appeals today, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the Turner Diaries uh, most certainly is still part of far right mythology and lore. You see that in the imagery. So the cover of our book depicts a gallows and noose erected outside January six, outside the U.S. Capitol on January sixth. We, you know, we write in direct uh, reference to the day of the rope depicted in uh, in the Turner Diaries. There was an attack that occurred in just, a place called... Just to interrupt you for one moment, could you please break down what the Day of the Rope is for listeners? The Day of the Rope is a, a moment depicted in the Turner Diaries at which the, the race traitors, basically, however, however defined in that, uh, by that group in the book, are going to be basically collected and, and executed uh, as part mm. of the advancement of this race war. Uh, so that imagery, again, was repeated on on january 6th uh we also see it in the manifesto released by a gunman who attacked a, a, a synagogue in poway in 2019 where he writes writes basically some of you have been hanging around waiting for the day of the rope to appear well the day of the rope can happen anytime you just have to want to accelerate it um that's a reference to a strategy of terrorism called accelerationism which is basically a concept that uh terrorism uh, that society is so corrupt and broken that we have to accelerate its destruction through acts of violence and that was uh has its real origins in the turner diaries 
One thing I'll note on this kind of uh, online space and the way it, it has changed extremism or, or given it a mass appeal is I think you really see that very strongly in QAnon. Uh, QAnon is an example of kind of mass radicalization in a way that's very concerning for me because when you look at the actual conspiracy theory, right, this concept that you've got this group of elites who are uh, running society and controlling the banks and the media and politics, uh, that's really an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory kind of give a new life in a social media era, give a new life in the 21st century because of, you know, I would argue accelerated because of the impact of social media that can bring these conspiracy theories directly into somebody's living room or bedroom and appeal to people who are looking for, for some kind of easy explanation for the, the troubles in their life. Um, that's a real, that kind of mainstreaming of, of these age-old conspiracy theories, these age-old vitriols uh, is quite concerning. Generally speaking, how how tech savvy or specifically with regard to communications such as social media, how tech savvy is the far right? And is this something that has been that has always been the case or is this a relatively recent phenomenon? The far right has actually always been pioneers in using modern technology. Um, Lewis Bean, who we've already mentioned uh, back in the 1980s, was seeking to go underground and wanted to find ways to connect disparate cells and elements of the movement. And he actually founded something called the Aryan Nations Liberty Net. Um, that was a primitive online system where different individuals could communicate uh, with each other through, through computers. Um, Bruce and I write in the book that arguably the two most important terrorist innovations uh, of the 21st century, that being lone act of violence or leaderless resistance um, and being social media radicalization. We both we often link those two things to the emergency of the Islamic State in the, mid, in the middle of the 2010s, but actually you can trace those things back to the far right, way back in the 1980s. Um, so they have always been on the cutting edge of new technologies, especially in the communication space. And I think that bodes quite poorly for an age where we are on the verge of some huge technological advancements. Uh, things like mm -hmm. ChatGPT being weaponized, for example, is, is quite is quite a concern. How is ChatGPT being weaponized? We'll see. Oh. I will say. I mean, I think ChatGPT is. It seems to me that the story of it is um, making everything easier. Basically, it's about uh, making production of material easier. Uh, you know, improving, being able to create imagery instantly. Um, those things are going to be used to propel radical material even further and I think boost radicalization. Well, yeah. I mean, there's already indications, not necessarily that I've seen on the far right, uh, violent far right, but of other terrorist groups trying to engage in what they call jailbreaking, which is feeding questions to artificial intelligence to facilitate terrorist attacks and finding ways to still elicit answers. Uh, so, you know, historically, terrorists have always been at the cutting edge of communications and have been ahead of government because they understand they need communications platforms for their survival, um, not just to radicalize and recruit people, but also to gather targeting information. So for them, this is something that uh, they're always trying to um, dominate the space and, and get ahead of governments. And Lewis Beam was a classic example. I mean, in the early 1980s, most government officers didn't have computers, for yeah. example, or modems. And he was way ahead of the curve in using this high, what was then high tech, precisely to obviate the inroads that law enforcement made in infiltrating um, uh, white supremacist groups and intercepting their communications through more traditional means at the time. One thing, David, I think, too, is we live in an era, too, where it seems extremists are particularly mobilized by certain politicians. Uh, just recently, we had the New Hampshire primary, and there was a artificial audio recording that was, that was making the rounds around New Hampshire of, of President Biden saying, don't vote, 
to really defeat the Republicans, we have to wait. We have to hold off on our votes until November. Uh, again, a, you know, an audio deepfake that was that was trying to change, you know, a political outcome. But you can imagine what would have happened on January sixth if there was a fake recording or a fake video of President Donald Trump saying something. How that could have changed the trajectory of that day in a, in a positive or negative way. That's an incredible power, and as that technology becomes better and faster, um, and can and can create new content based on on fewer uh, kind of um, points of entry, I think you know it will it will be able to accelerate radicalization and mobilization to violence. <clears throat> That's that's a good point. Another concern that I have is that a lot of when you just look at a larger scale, a lot of um, far right or even far left uh, authoritarian regimes tend to collapse under their own weight th- simply through failed leadership. And uh, turning this question to, you know, extremism in the United States, there is a there's an enormous amount of infighting. And with exceptions, putting aside exceptions like William Pierce or Timothy McVeigh, like highly intelligent individuals, it doesn't seem to generally be the case that a lot of these people are highly intelligent. But now you have an instrument that can essentially deliver what has been estimated to be an IQ of approximately 130, chat GPT. You can just put this in the hands of anybody. They can ask questions. Yeah. They can get 130 IQ answers. And now they might actually be able to to navigate some problems that previously they, they just would have just would have meant maybe the destruction of a couple cells or at least the fraying of some cells. It's quite terrifying. Um, turning back to a point in history very uh, quickly, I wanted to ask that you, you both wrote, you co-wrote a piece for Just Security, how the KKK produced the Justice Department. <laughs> Could you briefly explain how the KKK produced the Justice Department? <laughs> this comes, David, out of one of our recommendations, which has been quite controversial uh, Bruce and I recommend, we call for the establishment of a domestic terrorism statute. Long story short, um, the United States government does not currently have a legal tool at the federal level with which to prosecute domestic terrorists as such, which leads to issues with optics of prosecuting extremists of a different religion as terrorists and not prosecuting white supremacists, but it also leads to recidivism, sentencing equity, um, so we call for domestic terrorism legislation. Now, it, it, it might be one of the few policy measures that we talk about that we primarily hear criticism from the left because there's fear of uh, a, you know, an authoritarian right-wing president weaponizing, uh, weaponizing that tool to go after left-wing activists, left-wing protesters. Hmm. We respond to that recommendation in part by saying, well, actually... The entire Department of Justice was founded as a counterterrorism measure against white supremacist organizations, specifically the KKK, which was founded in 1865 um, in Pulaski, Tennessee, among veterans of the Confederacy, and began to cause a lot of violence in the South during Reconstruction. And the Ulysses Grant administration determined that they needed a stronger tool to go after these groups. And so they founded the Department of Justice. Um, this is just one way that we try to push back against, uh, against that criticism by arguing that basically the history of law enforcement at the DOJ level in the United States uh, is against white supremacist organizations. And so a domestic terrorism law is actually a relatively small step in comparison. Was it founded with the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act, or was that a separate but related uh, law? It was founded to enforce it, basically. This was the problem. You know, we didn't have a full-time attorney general until this era. And a full-time attorney general was appointed precisely because during the Reconstruction period, this legislation was on the books but wasn't being faithfully carried out. And actually, Jacob can say something about the biography of the first uh, attorney, ge- the first formal attorney general as a full-time job. Yeah, we, we point to that moment, actually, as, as, as a reason why maybe there's a dose of optimism to be had here. It's a very sad book that we write, but... Uh, one of the concluding notes is, yes, the Department of Justice was founded uh, and the nation survived that moment. And actually, the first attorney general formally appointed by uh, President Grant was a former Confederate soldier um, who basically said uh, it was time for our nation to heal and the ideologies that we fought for, it was time for them to go to the grave. 
And this Attorney General, uh, Attorney General Ackerman, uh, ended up being, he's recognized as one of the most aggressive uh, Attorney Generals in history on behalf of or in defense of African-American rights um, in, in the South. Hmm. You know, reading the book, I learned so much, not just about forward extremism, but also about law enforcement. And this was one of the points. But then also the book continues with some of the major victories of the Department of Justice Agency, the FBI, obviously, Ruby Ridge in 92, Waco in 93. But then the one that you really focus on as a major inflection point is the 1995 uh, Oklahoma City bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah building. And you describe it as an inflection point in the sense that... um, Extremism had been on the rise, if that's an accurate characterization, mm-hmm. and then suddenly things reversed because the government decided, okay, we need we need to crack down double hard on this. Right. And so, can you can you kind of explain how sure. how the bombing had an impact on uh, far right extremism in America? Sure. Let me let me weave into a, a little personal history. As I first uh, started as an analyst and at my first job, um, forty three years ago. And it was following violent far-right extremism initially in Europe. Uh, and this was because the team, I, the counterterrorism team that I joined, everybody else had taken the more prominent groups at the time. Were, at that, in that era, were mostly uh, radical left-wing groups or uh, ethno-nationalist separatist groups and, and so on. And, I, and then shortly after following these trends in Europe, I saw them manifesting themselves in the, in the early 1980s in the United States and started following it then. And in 1988, there was a very significant trial. 14 white supremacists were charged with seditious conspiracy, which is one of the most serious criminal charges that could be brought against persons in a democracy. It's also remarkably difficult uh, to prove and to convict on. And that's exactly what happened. These 14 white supremacists um, were acquitted. And this had two effects on the movement. On the one hand, it breathed new life into it. That if they had been removed from the scene, it could have derailed the movement. And this is why it's so significant that nearly two dozen members of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, including the leaders, were convicted of seditious conspiracy uh, in connection with the January 6, 2021 uh riots and insurrection at the Capitol, if they had been acquitted, I think there would have been very serious consequences, would have been taken as a a form of a green light. And that's what it was in the late 1980s. But interestingly, it also caused the movement to take a step back and to think. And they thought, well, if these 14 leaders had been convicted, the movement could have been decapitated. And this is when they start to shift, as I had said earlier, and cultivate a broader constituency. Um, And they especially turned to what was then the emergence of the militia phenomena. And then the militia phenomena really converges in the early 1990s after the election of William Clinton or Bill Clinton as as president, when he begins to champion uh, far stricter gun control legislation that had previously been the case. And in fact, this results in the passage of a a ban on assault weapons that remained in force until the mid-2000s, I believe, until 2005. And the movement becomes much stronger and gathers increasing momentum during the early 1990s, in part because of the strategic decision to appeal to a brighter constituency more um, energetically, and that's people with a very strident interpretation of, of the Second Amendment. But what I find so disturbing when I was writing the book is that right now seems very much like the 1990s, when there's you have this movement that's that's has unparalleled, at least at that time, historical historical popularity, where anti-government extremism is approaching a crescendo, where the loss of confidence in elected leadership, the denigration of Washington, D.C. as the swamp, concerns about, back then it was called the New World Order, now it's called globalists or globalization, was really taking hold. And led to exactly set Timothy McVeigh, a U.S. Army veteran, on the path to um, the Murrah building bombing. Now, he envisioned that as the opening salvo in a revolution that would topple the United States government. And fortunately, that didn't happen. I mean, it basically fell on deaf ears. This was a movement, as I said earlier, that was had isolated cells and pockets throughout the United States, but very limited connectivity. And the FBI also cracked down very heavily on the movement. And 
in fact, except for a brief spasm of activity, and this was the 1996 bomb bombing outside of the Atlanta Olympics in Centennial Park by a white supremacist named Eric Rudolph, also a U.S. Army veteran. In his case, though, he had joined the military to learn the combat skills to make bombs and to wage his kind of uh, race war. He also planted bombs at abortion clinics in the South and at a, a, a gay nightclub. But and then, and then, as you may recall, after a manhunt that lasted multiple years, he was finally apprehended in North Carolina. But that was basically the extent of it. The FBI was remarkably successful in suppressing these groups. And then, of course, 9-11 comes around. And with the attacks on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon, everyone's attention is wrenched to international terrorism and Salafi jihadism. And that continues until 2008. And then there's two seminal developments so far as the movement is concerned. Firstly, uh, the worst economic crisis, arguably, since the Great Depression of the 1930s, the recession that hit that year. And then, of course, the presidential candidacy of the first African-American with a serious chance of winning the presidency, Barack Obama, who's a senator from Illinois, and far in advance of any other a presidential candidate is given Secret Service protection because of the volume of threats directed against him, which only continue with his inauguration. And then you have the revitalization of this movement. Uh, on the one hand, economic and xenophobic grounds, but on the other hand, because there's now an African-American president. And this is also a period, don't forget, 2008, 2009, is exactly when Facebook is gaining traction and getting more popularity when social media is becoming an emergent and increasingly popular technology. So all these things come together. And then by the middle to end of the 19 teens, especially with President Trump's election, and then with his infamous statement at the 2017 Unite the Right rally, after the um, his statement after the uh, 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, when he says there were good people on both sides. We know it's taken as a green light, it's taken as a stamp of approval by the white supremacists, by the far right. Hmm. It, it seems as if looking at some of the groups that emerged at this time, Oath Keepers and Three Percenters and others, that uh, one of the main things that they have in common uh, that they hate together, it seems, is not necessarily any one particular group so much as it is the government itself. Is that an accurate characterization? Yes, that's, uh, and you know, and that's, that's actually, the, in a way, the, the title of the book reflects that. Uh, the God part really talks about the 1980s when this movement first arose and actually had a very prominent religious dimension to it. Many, many of the leaders of groups at that time prefaced their names with titles like reverend or pastor, and the Church of Jesus Christ Christian, a white supremacist church, uh, was very prominent. By the 1990s, as we've just discussed, the main issue becomes guns and gun control, and that's where anti-government extremism really is inflamed and accentuated. In fact, up until the end of when you could acquire easily the Turner Diaries, the headline or the in bold print, rather, I should say, on the back cover were the words, what will you do when they come to take your guns? I mean, that's how the book was marketed, basically. And then you have the, the, the 21st century where sedition, the last part of the book, becomes so prominent where just as you described anti-government extremism not only becomes more acceptable, not only becomes more of a mass phenomena, but when you have elected politicians actually making anti-government extremist statements. I mean, look at how Washington, D.C. is constantly derided as the swamp and how the gallows that was set up in front of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, 2021, although it was meant for a Republican Christian evangelical vice president, but also it was supposed to, you know, hold to account the liberal politicians that had gotten the United States supposedly or allegedly in the mess that it was in. Hmm. Um, when we look at this historical, well, the history here that you lay out in great detail in the book, there are some patterns and themes that emerge, two of which we've already discussed, the, the, um, the tech-savvy nature of these groups 
today, for instance, using live streams such as the, the Buffalo Shooter and others, using technology to really broadcast and almost advertise their message. And then the other one that Jacob spoke about, the lack of um, laws domestically that would be comparable to something like 18 U.S.C. Uh, 2339A and B, which allows us to prosecute anyone who is found guilty of material support of terrorism. Could could you explain to me what material support would include and what kind of prosecutory results we generally expect from that when it's foreign compared to what we're able to accomplish uh, when it's domestic? Well, David, part of what makes material support to a foreign terrorist organization such a great statute for prosecutors is that gets defined very broadly. So material support can include money. Uh, it can include propaganda. Obviously, it can include violence. Uh, but also, it can include yourself. So traveling, for example, to Syria to join the Islamic State would would classify as material support to a foreign terrorist organization. Now, FTO, Foreign Terrorist Organization, actually means something. Uh, it is a list kept by the State Department um, that has no white supremacist groups on it. So the U.S. government just cannot use um, the material support to a foreign terrorist organization statute for white supremacist terrorists, although they use it against domestic terrorists uh, in, who are advancing you know, Islamic State ideology. Uh, so what we are calling for is something comparable in the domestic space. Now, the FTO cases involving ISIS typically involve about 13 and a half years prison sentences. In the domestic space, usually we'll see, unless there's been a, a murder already committed, usually we see individuals prosecuted for things like firearm and drug charges um, or... Uh, or, or, or stockpiling weapons charges, charges sometimes. Um, to give you one example of what this looks like, the founder of a group called the Adam Waffen Division, which was a neo-Nazi organization, was arrested in 2017 and sentenced to five years for stockpiling explosives. Um, he was released early, and just last year, February, he was really re-arrested uh, for plotting to blow up power stations around Baltimore. Uh, so clearly somebody who did not have sufficient deterrence uh, to recommit, perhaps because he did not have that domestic terrorism uh, prosecution. So again, it's it's not a measure that, that's without controversy. We get a lot of pushback from people who call, uh, who say this would lead to, uh, you know, weaponization from a right-wing president or that it would lead to civil liberties concerns. Bruce and I do not support a list of groups. We think that would be a you know, particular uh, um, violation of, you know, First Amendment, you know, rights of assembly, for example. Uh, but we do argue that the status quo of domestic terrorism sentencing right now uh, is completely insufficient and requires uh, a new tool altogether. Mm. So we have, um, so one of the, two of the themes that you draw out are the, uh, the communication capabilities of these groups and then also the need for legal tools to combat domestic terrorism that would be comparable to what we have for foreign terrorism. Another one of the themes that you draw out in the book is the role of the military, which was quite an alarming pattern to see laid out. So you have Richard Butler, who founded the Aryan Nation, Timothy McVeigh, Eric Rudolph of the Atlanta Olympic Park bomber, uh, Wade Michael Page. Could you describe maybe when they're recruited into these organizations? Is this something that happens while they're in the military or other times? And uh, is there anything that we can identify with regard to if there are any patterns um, that relate to times of war, times of peace, since this is a pattern that is happening in the military? That's an excellent question, David, and super important. I agree with you. It's 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 upsetting reading through the manuscript to see how how often this this issue rears its head. And I'm glad you raised some of those names because I'm going to use them to answer this question. There's really three phases at which obviously somebody with a military background can radicalize, right? They can radicalize before their service and enter the military for training, for further recruitment, uh, to learn about insurgency and counterinsurgency. 
they can radicalize during their service because of military culture or, or what have you. And then they can radicalize after their service, right? Because of PTSD or other grievances against the government, um, they radicalize into anti-government groups or white supremacy, sometimes decades after their service. Um, those three last names you, you mentioned, Eric Rudolph, Wade Michael Page, Timothy McVeigh, are examples of those three different categories. So Eric Rudolph is somebody who very clearly writes in his prison memoir that he had radicalized. He entered the military as an extremist. He was seeking out the training basically with the idea that one day there was going to be uh, a race war or a war against the U.S. government, and he'd be able to use the skills he learned in the military against the military. The second person you named is Wade, uh, or the fourth person you named the second one, I'll bring up, is Wade Michael Page, who committed the... Uh, 2012, I believe, shooting at a Sikh temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Um, not totally known when he radicalized, but it's assumed it was during his time in the military. Uh, he was actually stationed at Fort Bragg in North Carolina, now Fort Liberty, uh, when a big neo-Nazi gang was, uh, was uh, exposed at that base, having just conducted two killings in nearby Fayetteville. So thought that he radicalized it's thought that he radicalized during his service and then timothy mcveigh's radicalization although he'd always been kind of uh involved in gun culture um it is you know his, his radicalization really uh, takes off after his time in the service driven in large part because of grievances against his having failed um elite special forces training upon his return from the gulf war um now these different categories really matter because they're going to uh, you're going to respond differently to them from a counter-terrorism or from a counter-extremism point of view. We find that overwhelmingly you're looking at that first and that third category. So we have a lot of people who have entered the military to seek out the training, and then we have the overwhelming majority, which is people who have left the service. Uh, they have PTSD or, or whatever, and, um, and they radicalize years later. Um, that goes to the second part of the question a little bit, which is, we often see spikes after wars, particularly wars that did not uh, finish well for the United States. So we saw a big spike in extremism after the Vietnam War, and we're seeing a big spike now after Iraq and Afghanistan. The reason why all this matters, David, is because the Biden administration after January 6th decided this was an issue they needed to take quite seriously uh, for good reason. But from what I can see, the bulk of the counterterrorism recommendations or the bulk of the effort that they've, that they've put in has been towards that middle category, active duty soldiers who radicalized because of military culture, for example. That's why they did the big stand down, right? The highly publicized, much criticized stand down to talk about extremism um, at the troop, at the unit level. Um, we write that it's far more important to look at screening to ensure people who have extremist mindsets cannot infiltrate the military, like Eric Rudolph. And then we look at veterans. Um, so the Veterans Affairs Department needing to do much more to look after people who are le legitimately coming home from, from war or leaving service and have real struggles and real grievances and making sure those people are protected from, uh, from being groomed and radicalized into extremist groups. Other than the obvious one, which I think would be PTSD, what other types of factors would make someone vulnerable for radicalization? What types of experiences would they might have had in their life? Is this military specifically or more in general? No, uh, in general, going all the way back so, potentially to childhood. Yeah, so so PTSD is a, is a large one, and we see that a lot in the military cases. Um, also in the military cases, you often see grievances against the government for a feeling that soldiers were sold out um, that, that, you know, after Vietnam, a lot of the individuals we profile, right. That the government basically left, you know, their boys over there to, to die without uh, proper mandate and proper resources. Some of the other personal elements that we see emerge frequently in our study is things like autism spectrum disorder and other mental health issues, especially in some of the younger networks today, like the Adam Waffen division is a great example histories of being bullied, histories of violence in the home. Uh, there's a few cases of parental suicide. Um, all of these elements, you know, none of them are enough on their own to lead to radicalization, but they might form what you might call a, uh, 
a group of vulnerabilities or susceptibilities that might make somebody less resilient when extremist ideologies and groups come calling. Um, and so we write in our recommendations section about what's called countering violent extremism programming, which is basically oh. the non-kinetic side of counterterrorism, trying to um, trying to address, for example, mental health issues among young men online and how you can try to patch up that vulnerability before an extremist recruiter manages to get to that to that individual um always a difficult and controversial thing to talk about for a number of reasons but we do find that, that those personal elements need to be addressed at some level uh as part of a suite of, of counter-terrorism and counter-extremism uh, policies Mm. You also talk about, in, as another uh, approach to the problem, is the importance of strengthening media literacy. Can you explain this? What would this entail? Well, this is you know something that actually the Biden administration has been uh, pursuing, um, but our efforts really are just falling behind the dimensions of the problem. I mean, for instance, you know, recent. Uh, report by the Reuters Institute at Oxford University found that uh, two-thirds of millennials um, get their, um, their, uh, their news, for instance, from, 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 from YouTube, mm -hmm. and about two-thirds of Generation Z are getting it from, uh, 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 sorry, the reverse. So let, let me start that off with. A recent report from the Reuters Institute at Oxford University found that two-thirds of millennials are getting their news from Facebook and about two-thirds of Generation Z are getting it from, uh, from YouTube. And this completely, in my view, underscores the problem. It's traditional media, obviously. Reporters, journalists have to have multiple sources for a story in many cases. They're rigorously fact-checked. There's editors performing yet an additional verification process all before it goes into print or it's broadcast. And that's just been the staple of mainstream uh, news media. When you have these social media platforms, as this Reuters report also found, is that many people between 18 and 40 prefer to get their news from social influencers than from bona fide journalists. So you can see that there's this huge cleavage in not just in what's, what, what's, what's fake and what's real, but what's factual and what's someone's opinion. And this is something that for, for centuries we've been able to rely, at least that the mainstream news media or the more traditional platforms will at least adhere to standards of, of accuracy and verification. And that all seems to be going out the window. So part of what digital and media literacy is designed to do, and this is probably more of a Department of Education than, let's say, a Department of Justice or an FBI um, uh, initiative, it's to is part, whether it's part of social studies classes or civics classes, which unfortunately are fewer and further between now, it's to actually train young people on how to understand what it means to be an expert, what it means to look for accurate, verified sources of information, as opposed to people's opinions. And except, uh, I think, in very, um, in very ambitious, but still far from widespread initiatives, we just don't see this happening, that people are given the, the intellectual tools to make these very discerning choices. Mm. Uh, well, as a journalist, you're definitely pushing against an open door if you're talking about the erosion of traditional media and the importance of it. I, I think we all saw recently the, the rather small but disturbing trend of TikTok historians uh, trying to educate us that Osama bin Laden was largely misunderstood uh, and that he was that his letter to America made a lot of really excellent points. This, and that's not the only example, but that was a, a recent one and. A, terrifying one um and then the protests that we've seen this uh because of the publication of your book and the date you know uh before october 7th but we've seen i think one of the things that is disturbing is is the ability for social media to turn sentiment among americans right. against america against our own institutions and i think we've seen a little bit of that in some of the protests that have come out recently would you agree well, yes. I mean, I'd go further is that the problem, too, is often our nation's enemies are using these media, sometimes in false flag, sometimes in 
reasonably sophisticated influence operations where they may not know that it's a foreign power that's actually spreading these lies, that's planting information as we know has occurred for you know protests that aren't organized by the, um, let's say, legitimate social activist groups, but rather by fictional ones. So yes, it becomes a threat to the national security of the United States externally perhaps even more so from hostile countries, as well as internally. And of course, going back to Sun Tsai, you know, the famous Chinese strategists of, of, of ancient times. I mean, if you can overcome your enemy without shooting an arrow or firing a shot, I mean, it's infinitely better if you can use psych- sophisticated psychological operations. They didn't have that term back then, but basically what we're seeing now is as old as warfare, but hyper-weaponized because of... The, the, the reach and the expansiveness and ubiquity of social media. Mm. Uh, you mentioned in the book also uh, um, what is uh, Barbara Walters, How Civil Wars Start, and Stephen Marsh's The Next Civil War. So now that we've kind of laid out some of the history, although there's, there's so much more in the book that right. people really need to go get their hands on this book and read but and then and then some of the policy solutions that you put in chapter nine but again we haven't covered all those either but some of the some of the main ones so okay we've got the problem we've got some solutions but i'd really like to uh end on a well this may not actually be a positive note but we'll find <laughs> you answer but um problem solutions how optimistic are you as citing barbara walters and stephen marsh right do you foresee us approaching an actual civil war is that uh realistic and is it right. near well one of the great things about you know having a co-author who's four decades uh, you know younger than you is that perhaps we have different views on many of these things but what to me was enormously pleasing i tend to be the more pessimistic of the two but but for me was enormously pleasing is that we both converged on this, this issue. And we were both fortunately uh, equally optimistic, at least I hope I'm not speaking for Jacob, but we do feel it was very important to discuss the fears of civil war that have been expressed by a leading figure in uh, American scholarship, uh, Barbara Walters at the University of California at San Diego and Stephen Marsh, who's a Canadian journalist, who each wrote very compelling books about this. And we push back against that. We don't think the situation is ripe for civil war or that bad. However, we do make the very depressing point that um, there's more than one firearm uh, for every American in the United States, that 2020, for example, was a record year in gun sales in this country where 17 million firearms were, 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 were sold. So we're a very well-armed country. So the threat of violence and the threat of, of civil war is, is not something that I think is completely outside the realm of the possibility. I mean, think of it this way. As, as we're talking today, the Houthis in Yemen are you know front page news because of their firing on ships in the, in the Red Sea for, for for example the United States has basically uh, you know its population is roughly 123 persons per hundred have a firearm which is more than one per person the number two country throughout the world is Yemen and it's less than half that 53 persons per hundred in Yemen have a firearm. So that gives you an example of how well armed the U.S. But what Jacob and I conclude is that fears of a civil war are hopefully exaggerated. But as even our former boss at the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, um, has, who was actually a negotiator for the United States government in Northern Ireland, so is very familiar with the troubles there, um, he said that a Northern Ireland type of scenario where you have discrete groups resorting to violence and carrying out attacks on civilians, let's say, on the quote-unquote other side, as well as potentially against elected officials. I mean, certainly is, is, is possible. I think most Americans would have said on January 5th that those who were following it knew there was ample uh, evidence to the contrary, but most Americans would have said something that unfold, such as unfolded on January 6th would have been impossible. But now we know that the impossible tragically can become reality very quickly, especially in a social media era. So we should never discount any eventuality. But I think in addition, I think one of the largest chapters, perhaps the largest chapter in the book is our policy recommendations. We think that there are ways that this can be repaired in the short term, 
over the next five to 10 years. And we also talk about a generation out in the next 20 years. And hopefully that will, that will be our, 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 our bet will be an accurate one. Mm. Okay. So we got to a hopeful uh, conclusion after all, uh, Jacob, any closing thoughts? For me? For me? Yes. Just, uh, Put your faith in young people, I think. That's, that's what gives me faith. I'll give one very quick story because you mentioned TikTok earlier. Um, mm. During COVID, President Trump uh, was going to hold a reopen rally in Tulsa. It was sold out. Uh, it was how the United States was going to bounce back from that horrible illness that we were in. And he shows up in Tulsa and basically half the stadium is empty. And it's because a whole bunch of K-pop fans on TikTok bought the tickets and didn't show up. The power of that is awesome. And I think social media, of course, is being weaponized in ways that are very dangerous, corrosive to society, but there's also so much opportunity. We just have to find the way to harness that and, uh, and, and drive it towards something that's, that's better. Mm, I had forgotten about that, but yeah, thank you for reminding me. That is an interesting story. Well, I want to thank you both so much for your time, and I hope everyone will go out and get their hands on the book. It is a, it is a riveting, uh, fascinating, and, and uh, disturbing, but uh, ultimately, I agree with you both. It's a hopeful, it comes to a hopeful conclusion. I do think the policy solutions are um, correct, correctly uh, put down. So thank you again for your time. Thank you so You're much. You're very welcome. Yeah, thank you so much, David, for having us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I might probably cut this off at the end, but I did want to ask one thing about the book because I was uh, one of the groups that I've had my eye on recently is uh, Patriot Front, and I didn't see it mentioned in the book. Was there a particular reason, or is it just that there's too many to go through the whole list of everybody that's involved? I think Bruce and I just both feel that that lone actors are the bigger threat. You know, if if you want to bounce around the groups, yeah. you know, we don't. I don't think we mentioned Rise Above Movement. Right. Um, mm. there's, a, there's a whole bunch of groups that we don't mention. I think it's just the manifest... You were focusing the, more on individual well, incidents by individual we're actors. We're focusing more on terrorism. And, and mm. acts of terrorism tend to come from lone actors. And, and so that's, I think, what, what kind of pulls the attention away. Well, I yeah, and I, I would add, I, I think that's one of Jacob and my biggest conclusions, especially from the success of the seditious conspiracy charges, is mm-hmm. that future would be or actual terrorists are going to take a cue from January 6th when people showed up with all sorts of markings, you know, and uh, the names, uh, you know, of their organization emblazoned on patches or baseball caps or flags and so on. Um, And they've seen now the prosecution of the leaders and senior members of organizations. They're going to burrow deeper underground. That's not to say that there might not be a it's quite likely that there, there, there could be something from an organization. But our analysis is that the plot to, to kidnap and try in a kangaroo court and ultimately execute Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is precisely a case in point where that, I mean, they called themselves the Michigan Wolverines, but it was a handful of people who basically met over Facebook, this small cell that resolved yeah. to carry out the attack. And that's where the threat's we think is going to come from in the future is if not lone individuals, small cells of people that are off the radar deliberately, that aren't communicating, that aren't making the same mistakes, but become even more dangerous because the deeper underground they embed themselves, the more subject they are to groupthink, the more is historically we've seen this with terrorist groups that go underground. They, they really start to believe their own rhetoric and they egg one another on to do something. And that becomes the threat that will be very challenging for law enforcement to identify and interdict because this is not the same command and control structure or communications in an organization, which is precisely the evidence that was introduced as part of the, the seditious conspiracy charges on January 6th. Mm, wow. That, well, there goes the happy ending. <laughs> well, this is this may not I may not include this, but yeah. <laughs> that's, that's terrifying. That's because they're 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 learning to make themselves increasingly invisible. Let me give you a specific example too. Seth Aaron Penley was at the time in his late twenties, protested on January sixth, and four months later, on his own plotted to blow up the Amazon web servers in Ashburn, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Now his goal, which was a bit far-fetched was to completely knock out the internet in the United States. He thought he could take down 70% of the internet. 
he probably wouldn't have done that. However, he was smart enough to identify precisely those servers, servers that serviced the three-letter agencies of the United States government. So he could have impacted the ability of our national security agencies and departments to communicate that day. And that was acting on his own, taking the lesson of January 6th. He wasn't showing up anywhere in a crowd, but he was unfortunately thinking big, but fortunately the FBI uh, got wind of it and and arrested and he was subsequently convicted. Wow, that's... uh... Did you see that? Did you see that Netflix movie recently? With um, it's called I think like Leave the Rest Behind or something. It's no. uh, science fiction dystopian. The uh, the family goes on vacation, and anyway, uh, it's a it's an apocalyptic science fiction movie. But you come oh yes, to- of course, of course, I saw it. Yes, I forgot that's the name of it. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Absolutely. And, the Teslas, and, God, and, I have a yeah, Tesla. Tesla. So that was yeah, right. particularly worrisome to me. And, they, and the whole movie, you're thinking, is it the Russians? Is it the Chinese? And you, Precisely. And you think they they just all they have all our enemies have to do is kind of like turn off the lights and leave us in a dark room with ourselves, and or maybe even we'll be the ones to turn off our own lights, hey. and and we would just start turning on each other, and. Um, David, life imitating art. This guy, Brandon Russell, who was one of the founders and leaders of Adam Waffen a bona fide terrorist group, spent less than five years in prison and then with a woman he met while he was in jail who was also in prison. Within weeks of being released, they plotted to to basically to, to, um, to plunge Baltimore into darkness by blowing up all the electrical transformers around the city. So, you know, yeah, this is, and again, operating entirely on their own. This wasn't like part of a big terrorist organization. He had learned his lesson from being an Adam Waffen and having a terrorist group. So together with a girlfriend, right? Uh, how do you interdict or intercept the communications between two people that are intimate with one another? Um, and this was a serious plot. Wow. That's, a, that's, yeah. Just last February, just a year ago. Wow. Yeah, that is terrifying. I, uh, <laughs> I if you keep us on, we'll depress you thoroughly. <laughs> well, I, uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Thank you very much. Sure. Uh, thanks again. Thank you for your time and uh, have a um, have a great week, guys. Right. Thanks for thank reaching out so to us. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for the great work you're doing. Take care. Thanks. Bye bye.